0: So as we go through this text, I want us to consider three things. I want us to consider the biblical and historical reality of the presence of evil. I want us to consider the present, the current reality and presence of evil. Then I want us to look to the future when evil will become history. So three things. I want us to consider the biblical historical reality of evil. It's there. I want us to also consider the current reality and presence of evil in our day. But I also want us to look to a future hope in which evil will become history. Now, David, again, he pens this psalm of wisdom to encourage the people of God, how they should live. As evil prospers. So the question is, uh, how did we live? Now that question has been on the hearts and the minds of God's people since the very beginning. Uh, We see uh, this question or this idea in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 1 through 9, in which the people of Israel have been taken into captivity by Babylon and Jeremiah encourages the people of Israel to marry to give your children in, mar- in marriage and also to pray for the welfare of Babylon. Now Babylon <laughs> were were the oppressors of Israel. And so the question is how should we live in light of the evil and the presence of evil in Babylon? We also see in the New Testament, we see this question also on the hearts and the minds of God's people in 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, as the people of God are wait, waiting on the second advent of Jesus Christ, uh, G, uh, Peter encourages the people of God that they should live moral lives as they wait on the second advent of Jesus Christ. We also see this idea in uh, in contemporary times, the uh, Presbyterian pastor and philosopher, has a, uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer, has a book with the same title, How Then Should We Live?, in which he talks about uh, the disposition of the people of God despite the moral decay of Western civilization. So we see this question all throughout history, and again, David is penning this psalm to encourage the people of God how they should live despite the prosperity of wickedness. Now, whenever we come to a psalm like Psalm 37 here, it's always a good idea to read the psalms in light of Psalm 1 and 2 and also in light of Psalms 145 through 150. Psalms 1 and 2 and Psalms 145 through 150 they serve as bookends for the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 1 opens us up with the blessed and righteous uh, life of the uh, righteous man and also contrasts that with the life of the wicked man. So in Psalm 1, we see the trajectory for God's righteous people, and we see also the trajectory for those who are wicked. Psalm 2 introduces us to the idea of the Lord's anointed. Now, that would have historically referred to the Davidic royal line, uh, which is connected to the Davidic covenant, which we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But that also has messianic and prophetic implications as well. So the blessed and righteous man that we find in Psalm chapter, in Psalm 1, uh, is the uh, is connected to the Lord's anointed that we find in Psalm two, and the Lord's anointed and the righteous man will have supernatural protection because of Yahweh's everlasting covenant that He has made with David and His royal line, which we find again in 2 Samuel chapter seven. Now, Psalms one forty-five through one fifty ends the Psalter. The Psalter is the collection of the Psalms that we have in our canonized version of Scripture. Uh, But Psalms 145 through 150 ends the Psalter with praise to God for his actions in creation and for his uh, displays of power on the behalf of his covenant people. So the question, again, is how then should we live? How then should we live as God's righteous people. So let's take a look at Psalm 37 here. We see this contrast of the righteous and the wicked all throughout Psalm 37. In verse 1, the wicked are the evildoers. In verse number 2, it says that the evildoers will fade away like grass. But the righteous are those, in verse 3, who trust in the Lord and do good. In verse 4, the righteous are those who delight themselves in the Lord. In verses 5 and 6, the righteous are those that have committed their way to the Lord. We see in verse 9 that the evildoers will be cut off. That's the trajectory for the wicked. They will be cut off. In verse 12, the wicked are those that plot and gnash their teeth at God and gnash their teeth at God's anointed and God's righteous. In verse 18, the righteous are those that the Lord has called blameless. In verse 20, It says again that the wicked will perish. In verse 23, the righteous are those that have had their way established by the Lord. In verse 30, the righteous utter wisdom. In verse 35, the wicked man is the one that has spread himself Like a green laurel tree. But again in verse 36. He is the one that will pass away. But ending in verses 39 and 40. The righteous. Is the one who has salvation from the Lord. And the one whom the Lord. Will deliver. Now there's something funny going on. In this text. If you look. At verses 25 and 26, right in the middle of this psalm of wisdom, David interjects a personal testimony. So he's spouting out all of these uh, almost parabolic phrases. And then all of a sudden he interjects what seems to be an outburst of joy, what seems to be uh, joy welling up in his heart. And he says, I've been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He continues in verse 26. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Now, if you really think about it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. This is why we know the track record of David's life. We know that David had a whole lot of high points. The, the, the most significant high point that everyone knows, even the children know, is that in 1 Samuel chapter 17, he defeated the Philistine champion Goliath by throwing a stone and smacking him upside the head. But we also know that in the life of David, one chapter later, King Saul tries to take his life by hurling two spears at him. And then another chapter over in 1 Samuel chapter 19, Saul tries to take his life again. Then we know that in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David gets apprehended in, in what must have been the most humiliating point of his life, is forced to act like a madman. To He's forced to act like he's having some type of schizophrenic episode where he drools and he scratches and gnaws it had to have been humiliating because he knew that he was the anointed king right so this had to have been a a a very a a humiliating scene but he had to do that because he had been apprehended and was in danger of losing his life in second samuel chapter 12 after he's conceived a child of adultery he prays what was probably the most fervent prayer that any father has ever prayed that God would spare the life of his child that was conceived in adultery, but God allowed the child to die. In 2 Samuel 15, he has to flee from the persecution of his own son, Absalom. So this testimony in verse 25 kind of seems a little bit shaky, kind of seems like almost a bit of a farce, if you tell me. And not only is David's testimony kind of flaky, but he's testifying about God. So it puts God's character on the line as well. In Exodus chapter 34, uh, Yahweh descends in the cloud and he stands in the presence of Moses. And as he's passing Moses by, he proclaims the name of the Lord. This is his own character. This is God, Yahweh. This is his own testimony. He says as he's passing by Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the uh, the iniquities of the fathers to the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is Yahweh's self-disclosure. He calls himself, his own self testimony. He says that he's a God of love. He's a God of steadfast love. He's slow to anger and merciful. But this is the same Yahweh that allowed Genesis 3 to happen. In Genesis 3, we find the fall of Adam and Eve. This is also the same Yahweh that allowed Genesis 7 to happen. In Genesis 7, Yahweh himself causes it to rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and he wipes out everybody, not everybody, everybody. That's more than everybody. That's everybody except for Noah and his family and the animals that he allowed to go on the ark. Not only that, this is the same Yahweh that allowed Exodus 1 to happen as well. In Exodus 1, the people of Israel, his own chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, are taken into captivity in Egypt and they are uh, victims of slavery. This is the same Yahweh that has called himself a merciful, steadfast and loving God. So now, verse 25 kind of seems out of place because that kind of sounds like the righteous being forsaken, if you ask me. But we know, as God's people, that God, in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is causing all things to work together for the good of them who love God and who are called according to His purpose. So now that we've examined the biblical, historical presence of evil. And we felt the weight of that. Let's feel the weight of the current presence and reality of evil. Because Psalm 37 also forces us to deal with some of the barriers to Christianity. It forces us to deal with some of the barriers to our faith. In Which verse is it? In verse 12. David says that the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. And then in verse 14, David says the wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. So what are the swords and the bows and the plots of modern man? You see, in, in this text, just to give you some, some context just a little bit, uh, when nations in ancient history, when they went to war, they went to war in the name of their gods. And so if, my, if we won this war or we won this battle, then our God was better than your God. And so that's what this is referring to when it says they plot against God with their swords and they plot against God with their bows. They bend their bows. But for us, we do something similar, but we may not be using swords and bows today. But what are the swords and the bows of modern man? Perhaps it's our faith in our intellect. And reason, maybe that's how we plot against God today. Listen to a quote from a modern, uh, popular secular intellectual who claims to be an atheist or, or agnostic. Uh, his name is Pendulet. Y'all, y'all probably know that name if you're familiar with uh, Penn and Teller. They do this little magic and comedy sketch thing. But listen to what he says about suffering, ironically. Believing there is no God means the suffering I've seen in my family, and indeed all the suffering in the world, isn't caused by an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent force that isn't bothered to help or is just testing us, but rather something we we all may be able, able to help others with in the future no god means the possibility of less suffering in the future and that's from a, a 2005 uh, npr article uh, that he that he wrote uh, back back in 2005 now we now we hear a quote like that and as christians our antennas automatically go up and we and our hearts fill with ego and pride how dare he thinks something like that. How dare he say something like that? But I've got a question for you. What are the questions that you have to God that don't make sense in your life? What are the things that cause you to look up into the sky and shake your fist at God because you, because God isn't doing things the way that you think he should do them? What are those things? Is it unanswered prayers? Is it because you see somebody who gets a blessing that you've wanted all of your life and you've been praying for it? And they're not even a Christian. (laughs) And the Lord, in his common grace, allows them to be blessed in ways that you couldn't even imagine. Is it when your hard work doesn't pay off? You've worked and worked And you feel like you're working like a Hebrew slave. And it's not paying off? Is it a deliverance that you've been praying for? A struggle with some sin that you see? uh, uh, You've been praying about it. for. You've been a Christian for 30 years. And since you've become a Christian, you've been praying praying for deliverance from this thing, whatever it may be. But then you see someone... Who just became a Christian last night and all of that, they seem like they have no trouble, have no problems. The same sin struggle that you struggle with all of your life falls by the wayside easily for them. So it causes you to shake your fist at God and say, why have you forsaken me? Why haven't you blessed me with this thing? Why haven't you given me this thing? So what are the areas that you feel forsaken by God in? Because the reality is that evil and suffering are real. And if you don't believe that, something's wrong with you. Okay? I'm just saying. But now that we've felt the weight of the biblical historical presence of evil, now that we've felt the weight and we've dealt with the reality present evil do y'all mind if I give you some hope (laughs) we need hope (laughs) because the reality is the thing that we can take joy in is that one day evil will be history evil will become history because we know as the people of God that God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is causing all things to work together for good for them who love God, and who are called according to his purpose. Now, I've heard Psalm 37, specifically uh, David's testimony in verses 25 and 26. I've heard that text alluded to and preached be- uh, preached about before as some type of feel-good, jovial type of you know text. And it should cause the joy of the Lord to well up in us. It should, but in reality... Psalm 37 is not meant just to be a feel good text. It's meant to challenge us because sometimes wisdom hurts. Sometimes wisdom hurts. A text like Psalm 37 separates the wheat from the chaff, it separates the real from the real fake, and it separates the wicked from the righteous. So my hope and your hope, the only and ultimate hope that I have to give you is that you have hope in a sovereign God. That's it. I mean, I still got to give you some Jesus, but hey, like you can take that to the bank. Like there are some things that we're just not going to understand this side of heaven. That's the reality of it. Some things we're just going to struggle with. So that should cause us to run in humility to a sovereign God and say, again, God, you are so infinite and I am so finite. But Lord, help my unbelief. Ultimately, that's all you need. Ultimately, there are some penultimate things that bolster our faith, that give us confidence. But ultimately, faith in a sovereign God is all you need. And if you need anything more than that, I bid you to re-examine your faith. Okay? So essentially, again, that's all the hope you need. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, again, if you need more than that, I bid you, re-examine your faith. But I want to give you some supplementary arguments in light of our hope in God. So something that comes out of our hope in God. Not something ultimate, something penultimate. So the quote that I referred to earlier refers to the idea of injustice and suffering. But here's the kicker. As an atheist... What is Penn Teller's basis for injustice and suffering? If there is no God, there is no basis to demand justice because the natural order is the survival of the fittest. The weak being dominated by the strong. An example, lion gets hungry, it hunts, it kills its prey, and it eats. It doesn't take into account if the prey was someone's child. It doesn't take into account if the prey was someone's parent. That's the natural order. That's Darwinian evolution. That's natural selection. Where is the injustice or where is the justice in that? Lion gets hungry, it eats. Nothing going to stop it. So according to natural order or according to Darwinian evolution or according to natural selection, cancer is not suffering. It is nature's attempt to eliminate a weak species. According to Darwinian evolution, the Nazi final solution is not oppression. It's not injustice. It's the strong eliminating the weak. According to atheistic Darwinian evolution, And to secular skeptics of faith, the transatlantic slave trade is not oppression. It's not suffering. It's the strong dominating the weak. But the biblical teaching of suffering is different. It's something else altogether. Here's a quote uh, that helps us understand the biblical teaching of evil. It's from a Christian philosopher and professor, Alvin Plantinga. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus, no way to say there is a such thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. That's a powerful quote. And if you want me to email that to you, I will, because that's very helpful for me. But... Here's the thing. Here's the kicker, even for me. If you guys know me, and if you have followed my Facebook or social media or anything in the past, you know I love a good argument. (laughs) And I will argue for Jesus Christ with all of my philosophical background. And I I mean, I just love to get in there. I love to see people argue premises. And I, I just I love that type of thing. But now, Let's look at David's testimony in verse 25 again. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. You see, for David, it's not some philosophical argument. It's not some deeply profound apologetic David's apologetic is, I know God for myself. I know that he's been faithful, and that's enough for me. His orthodoxy has informed his orthopraxy. His doctrine has informed his ethics. So it's not some philosophical argument that is bolstering David's faith. He said, you know, I tried God for myself and it worked for me. And don't let any Christian philosopher tell you that that is not enough for your faith. okay? because that's all you need. Because at the end of the day, all of these lofty will not save you. So at the end of the day, for us as the people of God, the question is, it's one thing and it's one thing only. Do you know him? Do you trust him? At the end of the day, that's it. Because the biblical teaching of suffering is unlike any other teaching of suffering that you can find anywhere. Because our God, our God, relates to our suffering so much. He cares about our suffering so much that he was willing to come and participate in our suffering himself. Every uh, atheistic, uh, you know, intellectual skeptic, they keep pointing their fingers at the wrong person. They're accusing the wrong person. God created a perfect world. We messed it up. You see what I'm saying? Like It was our fault. So stop pointing the finger at God. He made a perfect world. Some, some secular uh, uh-huh. philosophers would like to say, well, if, if there's a God, then he can't be all great, and, or he, he, can't, uh, he can't be all good, or he can't be uh, all, all powerful. That's nonsense. I'm not even going to cover all of that. That's, that's nonsense. Because our God, what separates him from every other God is that he doesn't want to be served. He doesn't want us to bring him food and, uh, sa- and, and sacrifice to him uh, uh, like the bales. He wants our obedience. He wants our faith. <laughs> That's our sacrifice. And so our God was willing to come and participate in the suffering himself on the cross of Calvary. And get this, he was the only true righteous one. Any righteousness that we have derives from Jesus. So here's the true and righteous one. This was true injustice. This was true cosmic injustice. But it was a cosmic injustice that set us free. (laughs) So in light of that, how will you deal with suffering and evil going forward? When you face unfairness, when you face the loss of a loved one, when you face job loss, when you face a debilitating disease that's terminal, or when you face a, debilita- a debilitating disease that may not be terminal, but it makes your life a life of misery. How will you deal with suffering and evil going forward? I encourage you as the people of God to allow people to grieve. Allow people to ask the major questions. Allow people to wander and go into the deep places with your brothers and sisters as they are suffering. That's what the church is for. We're here To feel the hurt and the suffering of one another. Because I want you to understand something. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. He was sad when Lazarus died. Knowing that he was the all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-knowing God. Knowing that he had the ability to raise Lazarus from the dead. And knowing that he had the intent to raise Lazarus from the dead. He still cried. He still wept. So be willing to mourn with people. But my brothers and sisters, don't think for a second that you can do this on your own strength. You can't do this on your own strength. So pray to the spirit that he would give you the strength to do this. Pray that he would give you the ability to say the right thing. Pray to the Spirit that He would also give you the ability to keep your mouth shut. Amos. Pray to the Spirit for wisdom. Because ultimately, our God is faithful. If I could bottom line this, our God is faithful. He sits on the throne, it says in Psalm 2, and He laughs. He laughs at our bows. He laughs at the the plots of the wicked. He laughs at the bows of the wicked as they bend their bows because he knows their trajectory. He knows their end. He knows that at Calvary, it was finished. They They were all finished. And we have a hope that death and evil, and suffering will all take its final breath. The Psalter ends, Psalm 150, with praise to God for his work in creation and for his acts on the behalf of his people. Yahweh is the same God who delivered the Israelites from slavery. He is the same God who anointed David as king. He is the same God who was faithful to his people in Babylon. He is the same God who has sustained the church for over 2,000 years. And I don't think he's ready to give up yet. Because we know. That someday we will be with him and we will see him as he is. And in the new Jerusalem, there will be no more crying. There will be no more dying. It will be a celebration. Just as the altar ends, Psalm 150, it will be a celebration. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust you because you are the sovereign God. God, we trust that in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, you are causing all things to work together for good for those of us who love you and who are called according to your purpose.